Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+. My name is Douglas Parsons. My guest today is Catherine Schultz. Catherine is a writer with The New Yorker and the author of Being Wrong, Adventures in the Margin of Error. She won a National Magazine Award and a Pulitzer Prize for The Really Big One, an article about seismic risk in the Pacific Northwest. This year, she has released a memoir called Lost and Found, and it was written with the knowledge that 18 months before Catherine's father died, she met the woman she would marry. I was able to read this book this past weekend, and I'm dumbfounded by the fact that a memoir like this should be sad, yet this one is all about love. It's uplifting. And it really is about what you have lost and found and taking the time to be able to discover what that is. It's not just the words passed away. It's that loss. So I'm really excited to be able to talk to Catherine about this book because her writing explores this. And it is a brilliant writing. It's a memoir, but in their words, it's also a guidebook of living in a world that is simultaneously full of wonder and joy, but it also has that wretchedness and that suffering. And you're able to write in a way that is love and is personified. I'm excited to talk to Catherine today about this, and we'll try to throw in some other topics as well as we have the time. Before I bring Catherine to your ears, this podcast is a love letter to the community. If you're new to us, welcome. We hope you stick around and listen to previous episodes where we're able to tell your stories, which are our stories. And it's from this that we learn about everything that it means to be part of the 2S LGBTQIA community. If you're returning, thank you. We are a weekly video and audio podcast that showcases the remarkable people found within our community be sure to press subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us today. I'm based here in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and it's important for me to say that as I like to acknowledge that I am living within Treaty 6 territory within the Métis homelands and Métis nation of Alberta Region 4, a traditional meeting grounds, gathering place, and traveling route to the Cree, Sado, Blackfoot, Métis, Dene, and Nakota Sioux. I acknowledge all the many First Nations, Métis and Inuit, whose footsteps have marked these lands for centuries. I'm grateful for the traditional knowledge keepers who are with us today and those who have come before. I continue to open myself up to listen, to learn, to understand, and I hope you are with me on this journey as we discover the truth. I make this acknowledgement as an act of reconciliation and gratitude to those on whose territory we reside. Today on Tales of the 2S LGBTQ Plus is Catherine Schultz, and now it's time to bring her up on your screen and your listening ears. Welcome to the podcast, Catherine. Thanks so much for having me on. This past weekend, I lost my favorite pair of glasses and I lost track of a whole lot of time. But I also, at the same time, found myself meeting a brand new person in real life who I had a great conversation with 
And I discovered I can actually make friends talking to people in real life, which hasn't happened in the last two years. What have you found and lost in the past few days? <laughs> what a great question. I'm shocked it hasn't been asked of me more often. Let's see. Well, I we were just talking about having a cold. I've lost a lot of sleep and apparently the ability to breathe temporarily because of that. I definitely misplaced a set of keys in the last handful of days and frankly still haven't turned them up. And in terms of what I've found, well, I have a little baby daughter and I discovered last night that she can turn the pages of the book exactly when she's supposed to. So I found that she knows a lot more words and a lot more about what's going on in the world than we knew, which is among the most delightful kind of discoveries possible. And I imagine I found a handful of other things too, but that's the first one that comes to mind. Uh, those are those awe moments or when you get excited, that gets a person through the day. I, I'm going to pick a bone with you here. Seeing that your daughter knows how to turn the page at the right time, are you going to pass on that trait of breaking the spine of a book in order to read it <laughs> onto your daughter? Because when I discovered that, I'm like, oh, <gasps> I guess be- I'll let her develop her own relationships to, to books and all things. I don't know if she'll be careful and, and fastidious and treat them like precious physical objects or just love the insides of them. I can tell you that at her current age, she definitely regards them as very fun to chew on and, and pull at. So if that persists, she'll be like me and she'll, you know, crack her spines and write all over the insides and, and generally make a mess of them, but cherish them very much. Oh, okay. I'll forgive. As I made mention, I have recently finished your memoir and I am stuck. It's a love story. It's a love story between your wife and yourself, a love for your dad and the brilliant ways that he influenced your life. It's a story about grief and it comes down to that loss. By reading it, though, I'm stuck with the fact that I was not faced with feeling overwhelming grief. And in many ways, it was weird because your memoir didn't get stuck in that grieving process, which I found to be evident in other people's memoirs. So why was it important for you to tell your story in this way, especially when it is so different from the other memoirs that are out there? Mm. I'm really grateful to you for saying that this this memoir did not leave you stuck in grief. And in fact, as you said in your very generous introduction, that it was a surprisingly happy book to read. That's music to my ears because that's what I set out to write. And it's not because my father wasn't amazing. And it's not because I wasn't incredibly sad about his death. And and for that matter, it's not because I don't address that grief, I, I think quite specifically and at some length in the book. But It's true that my overwhelming feeling about this book is that it is an homage to happiness and and to love and to joy. And you're right to frame it as a book fundamentally about love, you know, love of father, love of partner. And for me, that was that was the heart of the matter. You know, I mean, there's kind of two things going on in this book. And one is this exploration of these these larger categories of experience that affect us all, like finding things and losing things from the everyday, you know, your glasses, my wallet, to, to these momentous losses, like like those are the people we love. And, and conversely, all these wonderful things we find, including the love of our life, if we're lucky. But 
The second thing that's going on is this very intimate exploration of of the nature of love and the nature of happiness and and what it means to to create and sustain a good and a happy and a meaningful life. So for me, that was kind of a given of this book. I always knew that I, I wasn't in it to write about grief. You know, this book grew out of an essay that I wrote for The New Yorker after my father died. But I knew from the beginning that I did not want to just be writing a grief memoir. And I didn't want to spend, you know, 280 pages thinking about loss and sorrow. I wanted to think about love. I wanted to think about gratitude. I wanted to think about joy. For me, that was there from the beginning. That was that was in some ways the essence of the idea was this chance to to write about two people I love very much and to write more generally about the experience of love and wonder and gratitude. And I guess why it's still sitting with me is that I'm appreciative of the way you wrote it simply because it was a new way that I hadn't read things before. So as a potential writer, one's able to say, oh, there is a different way of going about in telling a story, which as a story writer or as a storyteller, that's very interesting to me. I want everyone to go out and purchase the book and to delve deep into the story. I know that if I had met your father, I would have absolutely adored him. Eccentric, strange, different, a voracious reader. Can you tell people what is the stack? <laughs> sure, I'd be happy to. Well, first of all, thank you again. You're singing my language. I too want everyone listening to go out and buy my book. As you heard, I have this little baby daughter. We got to put her through college somehow. <laughs> so thank mm-hmm. you for, for being an excellent publicist for it. But yes, I mean, it's always a delight to talk about my dad. And you're right, he was an incredibly voracious reader. And, and the, the strange household feature to which you're referring is this stack of books that that grew up by the side of his bed, beginning probably sometime when I was in, let's say, around middle school, when we moved into the house that I spent my middle school and high school years growing up in. And my dad, you were giving me a hard time about breaking the spines of my books. Well, I, I inherited that slightly cavalier relationship to the physical manifestation of books from my dad, who absolutely loved to read, but, you know, was had no qualms whatsoever about, you know, getting coffee on his books or, you know, peanut butter, M&M shells kind of buried into the deep creases of every page. <laughs> he had no particular respect for, you know, the sanctity of the physical object of the book. And one manifestation of that is he would, you know, when he finished reading a book, it would, it would start out kind of on his bedside table and it would migrate there into his hands and he would read it. And then when he was done, he would sort of toss it into this little crevice that existed between his dresser and the wall on on his side of his of the bed in, in my parents bedroom and over time as he tossed more and more books there it became this kind of exceedingly unruly but 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 kind of intellectually thrilling accidental bookshelf you know this this stack of books grew up kind of hodgepodge at all possible angles sort of all smashed together until it grew up literally over the top of this six foot dresser in their bedroom. And eventually he started stacking them on the other side too. And the the two stacks met. And so there was this enormous and and slightly dangerous kind of arc of books in, in my parents' bedroom the whole time I was growing up. And I've always really cherished it because it felt to me like such a kind of visual reminder of my father's incredible 
intellectual appetite. You know, there was almost no kind of book he didn't have some interest in. There was there was nothing he didn't want to read or at least give give a try to read. And, you know, you could find everything in there from kind of the thrillers to very serious histories of the Ottoman Empire to studies of the nature of human cognition to the novels of Toni Morrison. I mean, you name it, it was just all in there. And it was such a, as I said, such a beautiful symbol of, of the way his mind and his interests worked. You were mentioning him being a voracious reader and that he read a lot. find myself amazed by you, yourself as a writer. You are a writer with The New Yorker. And you cover so many different topics in your writing. Is this simply a manifestation of your father and his looking of things? And there's so many different topics and he's passed that on to you. Is that where your interest in so many different things have come from? I definitely think that's part of it. I mean, my father did have this really omnidirectional curiosity and he very much shared that with his daughter, with my sister and me. And so I grew up with a sense of of everything, if you look at it in the right way, is, is interesting and is worthy of our study and of our attention. So there's no question that I owe quite a lot of that to him. I also owe it to my job. You know, I'm very grateful to The New Yorker that they let me go and write about these wildly different things. You know, I have written for them personal essays like the one this book grew out of. I've written about, you know, seismic risk and stink bugs and 19th century immigrants to Wyoming and most recently about shipping containers. I mean, there's this wonderful way where they sort of let you follow your nose. And I'm really grateful for that because it means that I'm always learning something. You know, every time I sit down to write a piece, I, I get to really study some new little feature of the world that caught my attention. And that to me is just such a wonderful gift and I'm, I'm grateful for it all the time. The recent issue of The New Yorker, you've written an article titled, When Shipping Containers Sink in the Drink. <laughs> what is it about this subject matter that caused you to want to write about it? I mean, that is a fair question. You know, what on earth ever catches our interest? And that was a strange one, I must admit. You know, it started because I read an article in the New York Times. I was just, you know, reading through the, through the Times, as one does. And, and there was this article about these two cookbook authors who were a little bit distraught because they had just gotten the news that their cookbooks, which were about to be published here in the United States, had been bound for New York City from Indonesia or somewhere where they'd been printed. And the the ship that they were being transported on had run into a little bit of trouble and some bad weather. And some of the shipping containers on it had gone overboard in those rough seas. And unfortunately, it seemed that their cookbooks were inside the shipping container and therefore they would not, in fact, be being published anytime soon. And this, this struck me as funny and interesting and, of course, kind of made me scratch my head and think, well, you know, how often does that happen, right? How often does a shipping container fall off of a ship and, and something doesn't arrive where it's supposed to? And that was the little thread I tugged on to kind of wind up at this piece you just read. It ties in so perfectly with your memoir, Lost and Found. Mm. It feels like a natural extension of that. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, it's funny. I, I probably could and should have leaned into that a little bit more. But yes, of course, it's it's about, it's a whole different, you, you could also call that article when things go missing. It is also about the things that we lose and what happens to them and, and the many ways we can lose things in this world, including off of a ship. You never know where things are going to be lost. In a letter written by David Remnick to have you nominated for the Pulitzer Prize, which you did win for the article titled The Really Big One. 
he wrote the really big one brilliantly demonstrates how feature writing drawing upon reporting research and most of all the well-judged potency of prose can rock the world this quote accurately describes all of your writing where were you when you received the news that you had won the pulitzer prize in writing I was in my own home here on the eastern shore of Maryland. It was a Sunday evening. I was upstairs in a in an office space with my partner. We were both on deadline. We were both up there writing and my cell phone rang and I looked down at it and it said David Remnick's cell phone. <laughs> and you know when David Remnick is calling you on a Sunday evening, one of two things is going on and and one is you're really very, very behind on a deadline or something pretty interesting is happening. And of course, in that case, something interesting was happening and it was, it was a real thrill. And what did you find about yourself after receiving this award? What did you find about your writing as you've moved forward? You know, to be honest, I think one of my strongest reactions to to winning that prize, other than, of course, gratitude and excitement, I was just unbelievably thankful that my father was still alive. One of the most delightful things about about winning it was being able to call up my parents and tell them. And it's a beautiful fact about my parents that they they, they would be proud of me and of my sister, no matter they, they love us just for just for being their daughters, and that's a great gift to us. But it's still really fun and wonderful to, to give as an adult to, to give your parents the opportunity to fell about you and, and be happy and feel proud. And, and that to me was one of the really beautiful things about winning that. And as for my writing, you know, I don't know that it changes anything. I don't mean to be dismissive about how wonderful it is to, to win a prize like that. And, and, and certainly I'm incredibly mindful of the um, astonishing work my colleagues, not just at The New Yorker, but but in all forms of journalism, produce every day and, and how worthy so much of that work is, work is of, of more attention than it ever gets. So I, I don't mean to be dismissive about, about how wonderful it is to win or, or you know, the, the fact that, of course, it is a kind of feather you can put in your cap. But as a, as a writer, a friend of mine once said, you know, the difficulty with your last piece is it doesn't write the next one. <laughs> so you know, no matter what, you, what you've done in the past or, or how your work has been received, uh, at some point you sit down in front of a blank page again and you think, oh gosh, here we go again. I'm confident, of course, that if your father was with us, he would have read your book. What would he have said once he finished reading that last page? I think he'd probably have said, you had to wait till I was dead to write this. You know, it, it is it is one of the ironies about a book like this, that, that we do eulogize our dead and, and probably don't praise our beloved living family members and friends as much as we can while they're around to hear it. I And I wish my dad could have read the essay I wrote about him, and I wish he could have read this book. But I think, you know, as with all things, I think my dad would have just been happy so long as I was happy, you know, and, and, and proud to be my father, almost no matter what I was writing. But of course, I do wish he could have, he could have read me on the, the wonderful subject that is Isaac Schultz. I made mention before loss, but the words passed on or passed away, being cognizant of our time together. Can you talk about why you do not use the words passed away? Yeah, you know, I think they have just never felt comforting to me. And so I don't want to assume that they would be for someone else. Although, of course, I don't assume that they're not. I mean, I'm mindful that everyone grieves 
in in their own very specific and idiosyncratic and personal way. And it's very difficult to predict what will be a comfort or a help to someone else. But as I begin this book by saying, I, I've never been drawn to euphemisms about death. And I've never felt that they offer me any comfort or consolation or, or insight into the experience of, of losing and grieving someone you love. So I, I prefer to be plain spoken about these matters. We're here today talking to Catherine Schultz, Pulitzer Prize winner, recently released her memoir, Lost and Found. You can find it in all the finest booksellers, www.catherineschultz.com, K-A-T-H-R-Y-N-S-C-H-U-L-Z.com. And you can also follow her on Twitter at Catherine Schultz. Catherine, my age of 15 was earth shattering. My only sister was born. That was also the time when I discovered myself as being a gay man, growing up in rural Alberta, et cetera, et cetera. If you had the chance to sit down and talk to the 15 year old Catherine, what would you say to her? I think I would tell her that she was very lucky to come from the family she did and that she should cherish it every moment of every day and that she should worry less. I was a real worrier as a child. I still am to some degree that, that I would have many, many, many decades still with my parents and my sister. And I should use that time not to worry about them, but to, but to just love and cherish every moment with them. Amazing memoir, Catherine. I do hope that my listeners jump out of their seats and make sure that they purchase the book because it is so well worth it. And just thank you for leaving a mark in the literary world in all of what you do. It's just excellent work. So very, very appreciative. Well, thank you so much for having me on the program. I really appreciate it. On behalf of Catherine, my name is Douglas Parsons saying thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+. I'm here to remind you to be good and always text when you get home. Until next time, everybody.